now boarding on track number eight is train number one, the All Aboard Podcast. Your excursion into transportation excellence, or I should say your twice weekly excursion into transportation excellence. And I'm your conductor, Phil Bell, PB Crisp, Mr. 645, a highly trained rail enthusiast. And I'm privileged to be holding the E. Hunter Harrison chair here at the Bell Institute for Advanced Railroad Studies, where there are no degrees because the learning never ceases. And guess what? There's going to be a lot of learning today. I learned a lot. One of the things I've learned recently is that the best way to get you people stirred up is by saying something critical about Amtrak. So I know I had promised you at the end of the last episode that our next one was going to talk about railroad diversification, and we will be talking railroad diversification Uh, In the following episode, which is going to come to you on Wednesday, uh, January 17th at 12.05 p.m., so stay tuned for that. But because I stirred up so much with my column, which is called the E. Hunter Harrison Chair, and that appears in All Things Trains. So if you go to allthingstrains.com slash rail news, you can see that column on Friday. So we uh, put it out Fridays at 9 a.m., and we're going to talk about a variety of things related to railroads there. But... Uh, what I did is I talked about, frankly, the reason why Amtrak, I believe, will never, ever be successful. And I shared it in a few places around Facebook and so on. And I got to say a shout out to a lot of you, especially in the uh, passenger trains of North America group. There were a lot of people, some of them agreed with me, some of them disagreed with me. Uh, I was very happy to have the discussion, and I think it's great that so many people are now willing to have the conversation. Because when I was young, what tended to happen when it came to passenger rail is you had people like me who liked it, and you love trains, and you pretty much take any train anywhere without any question, and there was us. Then you had the people who were skeptical because all they knew is that it was going to take them a long time to get somewhere. And then you had people who rode trains just because either they had done it in the past or they had a lot of time in their hands. And the net result was when I was young, passenger rail was something that was uh, growing very slowly and was still shaking off years of decline that had come about during the last uh, batch of years when private railroads operated the train and then during the beginning of the Amtrak era. So having a discussion is great. Like I said, even if people disagreed with me, I'm glad we're actually talking about it. But first, I want to get to a few pieces of news. The first one comes to us here from Progressive Railroading. And this is where the uh, rail unions have called on the STB, and that's the Service Transportation Board, the Railroad's Economic Regulator, the FRA, the Federal Railroad Administration, that primarily focuses on rail safety, to step up regulations of Class 1s. And that is coming in um, now from a safety standpoint, whereas most of the discussion of railroad regulation has been largely focused on the economic side. And I just wanted to read a list of the uh, unions that were part of this 81-page report that's just decrying everything. So you have the Brotherhood of Railroad Carmen Division of the uh, International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, the famous IAM, the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW, the National Conference of Firemen and Oilers, part of the SEIU, the Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers International, uh, the Transportation Communication International Union, and the TWU, Transport Workers Union of America. 
what is so interesting about that list that I just read, and I did read it for a reason, not just to show that I can uh, read off of a page, is that the notable unions whose names were not included, the Brotherhood of Locomotive and, Tra- and Engineers and Trainers of the BLE&T, and also the United Transportation and UTU, neither of them were there, and I think that's interesting. Now, this report is 81 pages long, and one of the things that I want to highlight out of it that uh, really struck me is that they would like to enforce a portion of law that, frankly, I'm not terribly familiar with, but certainly will be soon, but that is the disqualification of railroad managers. Now, that is something that would give... Uh, the Service Transportation Board, the FRA, and pretty much any regulator that wants to poke its head out of the ground, the unprecedented power to dictate how private companies operate. Now, a little background. There is, to a certain extent, the ability to disqualify people from serving as part of a business already. And you've probably heard whenever there's a scam going on, something like a Bernie Madoff type or otherwise, usually something that will be tacked on as part of the penalties is that they can no longer serve as an officer or director of a public company or of a uh, or participate in raising money for a corporation or otherwise. So that does happen to a certain extent. But what triggers it is the commission of an out and out crime. You know, this isn't the sort of thing where you're going to get regulators together and say, well, you know, we don't really like what you did. Therefore, we're not going to let you be part of the industry. No, that isn't something that is allowed to happen. The closest to that comes from the securities industry, where you have a self-regulator that is blessed by the government to perform those functions. But even then, you have to really consider question the constitutionality of this because we are now talking about arbitrary judgments by unelected bureaucrats simply telling you you can't be part of this anymore. And that could be simply for policy you did that they decide they don't like, not something that's illegal, not something that's immoral, no moral turpitude, but just, eh, you know what, we don't like it, therefore you can't be part of railroading anymore. That is something that should scare everybody. And the fact that rail unions, people who represent those who are employed in the industry, are willing to go to this length shows you that there is a level of derangement taking place. For what reason, I do not know. And to be clear, I have no problem with rail unions. I respect them and I respect the people who are part of them because the people who make the trains go, as far as I'm concerned, are the most important people, some of the most important people in our economy overall, but certainly the most important people in the rail industry because even though, as I've said on multiple occasions, it's my goal one day to be a railroad operator myself, uh, people like me could not survive without those who are highly skilled willing and able to do incredibly difficult jobs. So I'm saying all that to make sure that nobody here takes us to say that, well, Phil's an enemy of rail labor, but I'm most certainly an enemy of asking the government or giving the government the kind of power to take away the ability of somebody to be involved in the industry. And I've got a better idea. What would happen if the government later could come along and say, well, you know what? I don't like the way that you handled that train. You didn't cause an accident. You didn't do anything uh, necessarily wrong. It's just not the way I would do it. So therefore, you're out of the industry. You can no longer be an engineer or you can no longer be a conductor. That's the kind of thing that it could, in its extreme 
come down to. And that's something that has no place in railroading and most certainly no place in a society that is ostensibly at least somewhat part of a free marketplace. Now, number two, something that's a little bit more fun because, uh, oh, and by the way, we're going to link this, uh, the Progressive Railroading article, which includes a link to the report in the description below so you'll have a chance to read it and i certainly encourage you to do so i know you're thinking i don't want to read 81 pages but you should read a good portion of it i will be as well and in a future episode we may discuss a little bit more now moving on to the second piece of news this actually comes to us from uh morocco so i was uh doing one of those dangerous things that i like to do all the time and that is surf social media. And while I was surfing social media, I came upon uh, Mark Glucksman, who posts under, and his business is named River Rail Photo, and he shared a picture of an SPV 2000. I want to get you a picture of what an SPV 2000 is. This is the successor, so to speak, to the Bud Rail diesel car. And these were developed in the late 1970s, introduced in the early 1980s. And they were basically a self-propelled car that looked a whole heck of a lot like an Amfleet or Metroliner car. And this used the Metro shell design, uh, which, you know, again, originated with the Metroliner, but is most notably used on Amfleet. And uh, let's get you a, a picture of what, the SPV 2000 looks like here. Hold on one second. You know, as I say, uh, one of the things that we have a lot of fun with on the All Aboard podcast is making sure that our tech works. And voila, there you go. This is an example of one of the SPV 2000s that was used in Connecticut. It was owned by the state of Connecticut, but operated by Amtrak uh, on the inland route. And just like the RDC, the Bud RDC, these cars had... Um, underfloor mounted diesel engines that powered them unlike the rdc these were not very reliable and uh spv which stands for self-propelled vehicle 2000 uh it was nicknamed the seldom powered vehicle because of how much they broke down but there was one place where they have been run consistently for quite some time and have actually made a little bit of a splash and here you go that place is morocco and what happened in Morocco? Well, they decided to use it as part of their presidential train. And a rail fan in Morocco who posts under Le Monde de Train. Uh, look, I don't really know how you say that. But here you go. That's an example. That is the presidential train going by made up of five SPV 2000s. It's five or six. And interesting, that sixth, that last car was made into an observation type car uh or, or at least more like a um uh what's the at least a theater type car with the larger windows at the end so it just wanted to share with you how cool it is that uh while we think of the you know the metro liner original metro liners obviously which are gone uh and actually their successors which have transformed into Amtrak's regionals. The SPV 2000s are largely out of service, although you can find some as far afield, interestingly enough, as Texas and California. Uh, Texas on tourist on a tourist railroad, Grapevine Scenic, which also has FL9s, by the way, 
uh, in California with Caltrain being used for track, track geometry purposes. You can find them operating if you go to Morocco to see the ultimate OCS office car special, which is the Moroccan presidential train as you saw there. And the final piece of news that I want to share with you before we get into Amtrak more in depth comes to us from a Ukrainian newspaper, Ukrinform, Ukrinform. Uh, let's see if we can get that uh, get that working properly. Boy, today is the day where the tech goes crazy, but here it is. Uh, Ukrinform, they have... Uh, pointed out that the Russians are building a rail line which links the port city of Rostov-on-Don, which is in Russia, with um, Maripol. Sorry, I'm pretty bad at pronouncing that, too. Uh, This is roughly a 118-mile trip, but I wanted to point it out because, obviously, one of the big news topics that we're going to continue to see for a while is the... um, is the war in Ukraine. And uh, I hope you'll excuse me for a second because uh, that sound, which was not a railroad bell, does indicate that we have to plug ourselves back in in order to keep using this device. But um, the war in Ukraine is going to continue to be a very important aspect of what's going on in the world. And one of the things that, that railroads were used for for many years was to help bring frontier areas into the fold in their respective nations. That's most certainly something that happened for many years here in the United States, uh, how we helped to, you know, build up the rest of our country. But you're seeing this happen in Ukraine. Now, of course, the article, which, as with everything we'll link in the description, talks about this as being... Um, as being temporarily occupied territory, as it is a Ukrainian newspaper. Uh, what is notable is that trains, even there, are still continuing to play an important role, and the article outlines how a big portion of that role is coming from being able to provide logistic services to support the Russian invasion there. So even though that, you know, we we typically in the United States, when we think about railroads and the military, we tend to talk about um, moving, you know, military tanks and so forth from point A to point B, one base to another. Uh, that happens fairly frequently. You're actually seeing in Russia and Ukraine a live example of how the railroad can play a critical role in war and a critical role in whatever is going to become of that area after this conflict concludes and uh one last piece just want to give a little shout out here to rl banks and associates so this is the rl banks and associates christmas card and what's interesting is it's made from a timetable a seaboard airline timetable from the 19 uh 1940s and so what's interesting so first on the cover you see the Seaboard Airline E4 locomotive, which, and this is the original paint scheme it had. It, they called it, nicknamed it the Citrus Colors. But what they did is they found a collector that had one and basically took, made some copies of it, scans, and put this into a very timetable style um, card 
that highlights a lot of the work that they have done on the southeastern services that Amtrak offers. So a little bit hearkening back to the seaboard. So uh, it, it's it's really neat. And R.L. Banks has been a big part of the rail industry for many years. Bob Banks, uh, the R, Robert in R.L. Banks, was very well known. And if you read any older uh, magazines such as Railway Age and Progressive Railroading and so forth from the 1970s, 1980s, what you'll see is the name Bob Banks come up as it was the preeminent rail consulting firm. And so it was part of a lot of what was done to help reshape the industry in a critical time and continues to do great work. And um, very lucky to have a good friend who works there and they are doing a lot behind the scenes that you and I don't always see, but they're playing a critical role and you're going to see uh, more of those results, even if not strictly their name as the 2020s wear on. So now that we're done with that, let's talk about Amtrak. Now I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a little bit of an Amtrak hater. And the reason why I'm an Amtrak hater is simple. See, I always grew up learning and hearing about what railroads and passenger trains in particular were. So I remember my aunt made for me a video, or she actually dubbed a video that talked a lot about the 20th Century Limited. And when you heard about things such as the barber chair or the the barber service they had and how you would uh, receive the newspapers and they had put the phone on board even before this was even widespread in every American home, you thought, wow, you know, the passenger train, this is just so amazing. But then when I would go and see the passenger trains of the day, and this was the 1980s, while it was very nice, and as you know from some of the previous episodes, I think it's uh, episode eight where we where I went on a rant and rave about Amtrak, uh, I, I was totally mesmerized by the trains in the 80s. But there was one thing, and it was weird. It never, ever, ever felt like what I had been told the passenger trains were supposed to be. And then as I ride Amtrak now, it feels very antiseptic. It feels very much like something that has to be provided for you as opposed to something where the operator is wanting to provide you with quality service. And to be clear, there are a lot of very, very good people. Um, I've, I've been lucky to interact with a lot of great crew members um, you know, on recent travels and on older travels, I've had a lot of tremendous experiences. In fact, some of the best experiences I've had in my life have come aboard an Amtrak train. I had so much fun going back and forth to college in Boston from New Jersey. And by the way, yes, as we do this, I am in fact drinking some tea from my Penn Central mug. So don't, yeah, so so yes, Penn Central mug, and we're on Penn Central cam here. Um, that's what made me, I guess you could say, an Amtrak hater. Now, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. But I just don't think it fulfills the goal of what we were seeking in America, which is to have a passenger rail system that is viable and that can fulfill a niche in the transportation marketplace. Now, it's folly to think, and, and I'll admit for many years I had this folly, that rail passenger service was always going to be what it was 
in the 19 teens and 1920s. It's crazy to think that that was going to be the pinnacle of transportation in America and that nothing would ever come along to uh, compete with it for that or supplant it as the top way of getting around. And what I do think is good about the current transportation infrastructure we have is that we have multiple ways to get there. If you need to get there faster, you can take an airplane. If you need to go overseas, you can take an airplane. If you want to stop and look around at any and everything, you can drive and you can have good roads to drive on. If you want to take the train and be in the middle of that stack, you can do so. In some places, if you want to take a bus, although Greyhound is, of course, in decline yet again, uh, but is an instructive example for what we're talking about here, you can take that too. Having an all-of-the-above approach is something that always makes sense. And therefore, uh, it's good that there is some form of intercity passenger rail, but I do not believe that it should be provided by Amtrak. I do not believe that it can be effectively provided by Amtrak. And although they in all likelihood will continue to run the trains for years, if not decades more, I do not believe it will ever be a successful system. And here is why. The first thing I want to talk about in that is why railroads are successful. Now, we did this a little bit a couple episodes ago. Uh, We were talking about short line rail, but I want to recap that. Passenger, commuter, and freight rail work on the basis of aggregation. And aggregation simply means you're taking a group of, in the case of passenger rail and commuter, a group of people, all of whom originated in different places, but all of whom are going to terminate in different places. But for a portion of their journey, they're going to share the same group of rail cars. Now, by contrast, air travel and truckload freight focus on moving either one group of people or one group of lading from an origination point to a destination. You get on the airplane, everybody gets on the airplane. You leave Atlanta, for example. You fly to Washington. Everybody gets on in Atlanta, they get off in Washington. They're starting in one place, they're ending in one place. It's a different form of transportation. Now, it can be cheap. It, it is effective because, of course, it takes people at a relatively high speed. That's why air travel works. And the same thing goes with truckload freight. You can get whatever you're putting in that truck very fast because there is no nothing, no stops that it has to make en route other than for the driver to get food, go to the restroom, and take his mandated rest. Now, Rail succeeds because of this aggregation, which allows it to be cheaper than other modes on a per-mile basis. That's why it works. Now, if you think about it, very few trains anywhere in the United States load up entirely at one point and unload entirely at another point. And so that means another thing that you have to think about, which is that passenger rail cannot be judged the same way that you would judge airlines or uh, airlines or even simply the private automobile. And that's because with an airplane, one of the ways that you judge how effective an airline is, is talking about load factors or the percentage of seats that they sell. But with a train, because the trains make many intermediate stops, that means you're going to turn over multiple seats many times. You might depart from New York's Penn Station with a full Lakeshore Limited train number 49. Well, by the time the train gets to Albany, you'll have people exit the train. That means you'll have more seats that you can resell. That means there are more seats that you can sell upgrades with. So just a strict a strict 
understanding of, well, this is the load factor, and the higher the load factor, the better. That does not tell the full story when it comes to passenger rail. So that's something to think about. The next aspect of what, um, well, let me just back up here. So that's what makes railroading work. But I want you to think about this. When you are talking about moving these trains, uh, excuse me, moving the equipment and providing the crews all across the country for a service that is highly dependent on intermediate intermediate business, you have a very difficult job to do. And what's more, you have relatively little capital to do it with. And now I know a lot of you are going to say, well, of course, Phil, of course you don't have enough capital to do it on Amtrak. That's because those bums in Congress, especially your Republicans, yes, I'm a proud conservative Republican, you know it. Uh, your Republicans always want to cut Amtrak and, and they never get the full appropriation they need. Well, I want you to remember something that's important. Amtrak was structured as a merger. Yes, a merger of all of the remaining passenger trains that they choose to take, that choose, choose to take, by the way. They didn't take everything that was operating the day before they took over. They picked and choose what they wanted. But they effectively merged all those together into a single system. And what is the point of a merger? Well, the point of a merger, any business combination, is so that a combined entity can operate with lower capital needs and generate an equal or greater amount of business. Remember that. Lower capital needs equal or greater amount of business. Well, what's happened? You simply took all these trains, put them together, merged it, and now you have something that's supposed to have lower capital needs, which is a good reason why it does not get all of the capital that it says it needs every year, because it's supposed to be lower than what existed before, to provide an equal or greater amount of business. Has it done that? Well, the record is mixed. When it comes to state-supported travel, yeah, it's done a lot more, but those are also trains that in general were not part of this in the first place. When it comes to the national system, absolutely not. They operate now fewer trains than they did. And they serve fewer areas than they previously did. And so the result has been what? Well, the reality is that it has not succeeded, largely because the idea of operating a national system does not work when a substantial portion of that business must be, must come from intermediate travel. And that's one other thing that I also like to point out when it comes to why Amtrak is structurally deficient. Remember, its orientation is toward the endpoint city. So we tend to think about, and the best example are your trains that operate from the East Coast to Chicago. So your Lakeshore Limited, your Cardinal, and your Capital Limited. What do these trains have in common? Well, they all tend to pass through Ohio and Indiana, which means cities such as Cincinnati and Cleveland in the night. And so what does that mean? So you get to Cleveland around, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., maybe 3 a.m., depending on when the train is running, if you're on the Capital Limited as well as the Lakeshore Limited. It's interesting, when you go to Cleveland, you'll notice that the Capital and the Lakeshore uh, pass through the station very close on each other's heels when they're running on time. So what does that mean? How could someone who is departing from Cleveland then have multiple travel options to get to a Chicago or to get to a Buffalo, 
or Pittsburgh or otherwise, when most of the trains that come through his area are coming within an hour to one to two hours of each other. Well, that simply takes away the ability of those people in the intermediate areas to have effective transportation, largely because the schedule is done to focus on the endpoints of New York and Chicago or Washington and Chicago. This is something that is going to be endemic when it comes to a national operator attempting to serve smaller areas as opposed to a regional operator that can more effectively allocate a larger amount of capital. Remember that a larger amount of capital on these areas that are intermediate and generate business outside of what can be seen in the endpoints. So that's yet another reason and another example, a real world example of where Amtrak's national orientation is actually failing a large number of people in the nation. Now, moving on to my next point. Um, so we're talking about intermediate uh, The next is the supply chain. Now, prior to the 1960s era decline in passenger rail, we had three major rail car builders, and that's Bud, Pullman Standard, and American Car and Foundry. You all said St. Louis Car. Uh, they vied for rail car business. And what was different about them than the rail car builders of today is that because you had a large number of railroads that were providing service, you constantly had the need to replace the fleet. What you don't have now is the constant need to replace the fleet because Amtrak, again, following what a merger is doing, operating with less capital because it combined everything together. Again, what mergers do. I, I think I've said it about five times, but I want to reiterate that. Um, it's not regularly replacing it. So that means rather than having builders that have the capability to provide new rail cars, and we're not just talking about rail cars, we're talking about components. We're talking about interiors. We're talking about trucks. We're talking about pedestal liners. We're talking about all manner of parts. Because you don't have that, everything becomes a one-off. Everything is a multi-year bid cycle. And then after the bid process, a multi-year construction process, and then a multi-year process to take the constructed equipment and then get it available for service. Great example, the Acela 2 train sets. They are now uh, at least two years behind schedule and maybe more. Recently, there was good news that one of them passed a computer simulation test, which I've got to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure why the process is structured this way, that you would be doing computer simulation tests after the trains are built. And if somebody says, well, this is what the FRA wants, well, let me tell you, I'm no fan of theirs either because the absurdity to which they have decided that the entire passenger rail car and rail equipment process, this has gone far beyond rail car safety. This has simply gone into, uh, into providing funding for the cadre of consultants and computer provider, tech providers, and everything else that goes into it and has nothing to do with the ability to get safely and effectively get a rail car or a train set or otherwise down the track. So, uh, you know, certainly not going to leave them held harmless in this discussion. But uh, when you put all that together and you have this multi-year process, multi-decade, uh, it could stretch into a multi-decade process depending on what's happening. 
you certainly have no way that you can effectively expand the service even if your capital base were to increase. And just think, Amtrak's been going around over the past few years and they've been doing whatever they can to help promote the idea of expanding their service. And that's one of the things I want to say kudos to them on. Uh, because I, although I don't approve of the way that they're going about it, which I think is trying to put a bear hug around the freight railroads, and the freight railroads should be viewed as a partner as opposed to an opponent. Um, but I am glad that they're making an effort to get the message out to people that it is possible to have passenger rail. But if it all bore fruit, where would the equipment come from? How would it operate? It wouldn't. It would take forever because you don't have suppliers. And another example I want to add here, because this is something that truly scared me when I found out about it, was back in 2016, Columbus Castings went bankrupt. Columbus Castings was a foundry that provided rail car parts, including trucks and passenger uh, passenger rail car frames for a lot of excuse me, the cars that we have traveled on in recent years. When you have something that's so critical and a company that has a virtual monopoly on the business and when the business is coming from government sources and it can't cut it, that shows you how difficult this structure is when you're relying on one national operator to be the bell cow for the entire industry. Now, it just simply doesn't work. And the final piece that I want to point out here and why it doesn't make a lot of sense to have a single national rail, railroad operator comes to us from somebody I'm a big fan of and you've probably heard of. Uh, a guy knows a little bit about business and his name is Peter Thiel. Now, Peter Thiel wrote a book called Zero to One and I've actually been reading that book as part of a, uh, a book club at my other job where I do fundraising. But in Zero to One, Peter Thiel talks about how the governor or legislature of a state has very little ability to exercise the authority that it has down to its extremities. And the example he uses is the DMV. Now, we all hate the DMV, right? But how many times have you heard the governor of your state or of some state talk about how they can improve the DMV and they're going to try to privatize this, they're going to do that and so on. And when you go into the DMV, the people sit there and they tell you whatever they want. They just decide, no, you need this form and that form, even though the rules specify that you don't need certain forms uh, and pres prescribe, not proscribe, prescribe which forms you do. Uh, but yet they do whatever they want. Well, likewise, the same goes for the ability of Amtrak's national leadership. We're talking about Stephen Gardner and his uh, crew in this case to exercise authority over the people who do the most basic jobs. Now, one example that I pointed out in my column is cleaning between the tables and the walls on your cafe cars. Now, I've had people tell me, well, it's not the job of the cafe attendant to keep that clean. Well, frankly, and, and this goes out to all of you cafe attendants, whether you're, you've been nice or not, if you're not looking in there, you're not keeping the car clean because there is any manner of gunk and goop and everything else that is gross. And it is just inches away from my food 
And oh, by the way, it's also by vents that blow air around the car. So guess what? You're also blowing that dust and grossness around so that we can breathe it in. It's something that absolutely should be looked after. There are many aspects of any kind of a business that is difficult to understand. And therefore, it's difficult for the people at the top to help impress on those at the bottom and sometimes in the middle why it's critical to do those things. So while I certainly appreciate that a large business is generally, the fact that a business is large is generally indicative of its success, when it gets to be so large and becomes unwieldy, to the extent that it's difficult for Stephen Gardner in Washington to influence the people less than 300 miles away in Sunnyside Yard to keep the cafe cars clean. Well, how much more influence is he going to be able to exercise at Grand Forks, North Dakota or Sebring, Florida or, uh, or Ontario, California? Very little. So there's no point in putting the leadership, whether they're good or bad, at that kind of a disadvantage by saying, well, yeah, we got to have one single solitary national system that stretches everywhere to be the sole repository of the inner city passenger train in the United States. It's just a bad structural idea. What did make sense was the original goal of rail packs or the original approach of Amtrak in its early years when the private op private railroads continued to operate the trains under contract to Amtrak, and that included their equipment and so forth, and Amtrak paid them. That made a lot more sense, and something like that might actually offer a way forward. Now, in future podcast episodes and future columns uh, from the E. Hunter Harrison chair, I will opine on that much more and provide you with facts and figures and data and so on. But what I wanted to do was, first of all, talk about this a little bit more in depth. And I wanted to make sure, even though I did repeat myself a few times, make sure that you understand a lot of the overall business strategy that underlies this and the difficulty that Amtrak and its leadership, regardless if they're somebody as successful and uh, skilled as Graham Clater and Paul Reistrup, or if there's somebody at the polar opposite of that, like George Warrington, um, that they face in trying to operate the system, and why, despite having so many people like a Paul Reistrup or a Graham Clater or an Alan Boyd or even David Gunn, that they were never able to succeed or even get close to reaching the promise that had been put out uh, when the National Railroad Passenger Corporation was created. In fact, in reality, it's been a lot closer to what President Nixon said privately, which was to give the passenger train a dignified death. Just so happens that the death has not quite happened yet. And as someone who loves to ride trains and who wants to ride trains until the day he dies, quite frankly, I hope I die riding a train, uh, not in a negative way, just want to, you know go out if i'm going to go out i want to want to go out uh quietly in my sleep in my pullman car um and i say spread my ashes somewhere along the erie lackawanna railroad but that's uh that's for another time hopefully for many years into the future um i want though future generations to see the passenger trains that we've all been told about and i want them to have the opportunity to take advantage of and ride those trains and uh, ship express by those trains and connect to other modes of transportation by those trains. 
That's what I want to see. And that's why I wanted to start that conversation with my column there. So stay tuned. I hope you enjoyed this on Wednesday. We will have the discussion of rail diversification. And then next Friday, we'll have another column from the E. Hunter Harrison chair uh, in that series as well. And before I let you go, please go over to allthingstrains.com. That should be the first site you go to. Don't make it Facebook. Don't make it Instagram. Don't look at eThoughts. Go to allthingstrains.com and look at eUnits. It's much better. It's way more fun. And uh, we'll see you down the main line. Thank you so much. And one more thing, please share your thoughts in the comments. I've had a lot of people either call me up on the phone or otherwise tell me they agree with me, they disagree with me, ask me more questions. By the way, shout out to you, James E. from Pennsylvania. uh, Called me up the other day to talk about um, parallel systems and the train, the autonomous trains that they're developing. I want more of you to do that. So please, info at allaboard.media, share in the comments, and we will see you on the main line.